Welcome to Tapeheads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. This is the podcast where we select a VHS tape from either Lindsay's collection or my collection. We watch it and then we talk about it. What did we watch tonight, Lindsay? We watched The Three Musketeers. This is the 1993 Disney version of the famous book. It's been remade and remade over decades and decades. Versions in French and English and Russian. Mm -hmm. Just looking briefly online, you find versions going back to 1903. So like going back to the birth of cinema. Which is insane. Also, I feel like every country has made their own version as well. Yeah. You're finding ones from Russia apparently is really into Alexander Dumas. They're all about D'Artagnan and his adventures. I was always aware of this version. I had never seen it until we, we visited visited it for for this podcast though but this is a childhood favorite of yours wasn't it oh absolutely it's it was fun watching it because i had such vivid memories a lot of the fight scenes and some of the different characters and it it was definitely a major favorite of mine now before we get to the movie itself we had a very interesting experience with the uh trailers before the movie (laughs) Disney always uh, likes to throw in a lot of trailers. They want to make sure that you know about as many films as possible that they're making so they can get as much as your of your money as possible. The interesting thing about this VHS was that they had ads before and after. Yeah, they had three ads. And then when it seemed like they were about to go into another ad, they said, after our feature... Stay tuned for more great previews. And after the end credits of the movie, there were three more ads. Like which it's is... this big treat that after the movie, you get to see more advertising. Did you know about this when you were a kid, or did you not watch it all the way through to the end? I honestly don't know if I ever watched it through the through the end. Like, I don't remember those trailers being there, but I've, I've seen all those trailers before. I might have watched them. I usually got bored during the credits. My mom was the only one in the family who wanted to watch credits. See, I liked uh, credits when I was a kid. I would always think that there might be some special nugget afterwards, which I guess this makes them true trailers, because that's where the word comes from, is they used to come after the movie, but still, it's really odd oh. for Disney to have done that. Wait, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, they used to come after the movie. Was this in, like, the the old black and white days? Yeah, yeah. Uh interesting like some people went to the movies to see the news right yeah there was news segments yeah it was it would be they'd make a day of it there'd be you know the newsreel there'd be a cartoon you know a short subject the movie sometimes there'd be an a feature and a b feature like sort of a double feature and there'd be trailers in between it was just a mess (laughs) (laughs) you just spend 18 hours (laughs) at the theater my mom used to complain when movie prices were going up and we were playing like $6 for the, you know, nighttime price. And she'd just be like, I used to pay a nickel to see two movies. <laughs> Shaking her fist at the screen. So we had some really sport-centric trailers. We uh, This was a boys movie. The first one is D2, The Mighty Ducks. Oh, yeah. Which I'm pretty sure I saw. I just don't really remember much yeah. about it. It's appropriate to have Emilio Estevez in there before his brother's movie. That's true. I did not even think about that. Yeah, Um, yeah, it's, you know, it's exactly what you expect. Emilio Estevez 
yelling at kids to be better hockey players, and inevitably they become better hockey players. And then everyone hugs. Everyone hugs. We follow this up with Cool Runnings. Oh my god, I love that movie. I loved all John Candy movies. Yeah, you know, Cool Runnings has really withstood the test of time just in sheer visibility. Like, Mm. everyone still knows. If you ask anyone about Cool Runnings, especially of our generation, they still will at least remember it, but most often have very fond memories of it. I mean, yeah. it's a it's a Jamaican bobsled team. What's not to like? And oh it's just, yeah, uh, that always get shown at school during rainy days. No, and it's just I don't know. I associate John Candy with happy childhood memories. Uncle Buck, planes, trains, and automobiles. That was a favorite. Cool Runnings, Home Alone. He was in Home Alone. But this next one, I'm not sure if you know anything about. I I sure had never heard of it. It's called Iron Will. And it's, again, ostensibly a sports movie, except that the sport this time is... Dog sledding. Dog sledding. It seems like a very, like, oddly serious movie. I'm pretty sure I saw this movie. I was obsessed with animal movies as a child. So I kind of feel like I saw this. I do remember seeing... There were a handful of dog sled movies that came out around this time too there was like an animated one there were a couple live action ones later on you had like snow dogs eight below chili dogs the skeet ulrich we just loved our snow dog sledding movies no except that we didn't no. Um, so, okay, so we're three trailers down, and we're into the movie. Now, do we cover the rest of the trailers now, or do we do it the way the Three Musketeers do it? <laughs> we and should cover them now. Cover them now, get them out of the way. Okay. Why make them wait? They just want to hear about those ads. Yeah, Disney, this, guys. Yeah, we, we get a lot of emails about how this is everyone's favorite part of the show. <laughs> right, Lindsay? <laughs> Uh, when we when we talk about movie trailers that that came on the VHS tape, I think it's honestly I think it's your favorite part. When we start the VHS tape out, you always have the notepad getting ready to write them down. Yeah, which has been a bummer for me because you are seriously beating me in the trailer department because you're picking Disney movies that all have four, five, <laughs> six ads. Even Chad is beating me. Our guest Chad Hines, friend of the show from uh, The Saint last episode. The Saint was loaded with trailers. And they had that weird sci-fi movie that was so odd. And yet, my score right now is one. And that was on the Commando VHS tape. And that barely counted because that was a a 20th Century Fox selections ad that will probably pop up several times more in the future. I like that they were at least honest when they said Fox selections. Like, they weren't like classic Fox cinema. They were like, no, we're just picking a bunch of movies we want you to buy and we're trying to repackage them. You mean Cocoon 2 is not a classic? Probably not. Okay. Maybe some, some people. Well, let's keep adding to your to your trailer tally here with uh, Adventures of Huck Finn. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is another boy movie, probably. I, they, they intend this stuff as boy movies, but I don't know. I liked a lot of, like, quote-unquote boy movies when I was a kid. Yeah. Look, I'm, I'm always into Mark Twain. You know mm-hmm, me, but mm-hmm. there's only one Huck movie, and it stars <laughs> a certain JTT. A certain JTT. A certain so JTT and a certain Brad Renfro RIP. Oh, um, did he pass away? He passed away. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, that's sad. Tom and Huck coming soon. 
Now this next trailer, <laughs> we're at number five of six. Just hang in there, everyone. Number five was a huge part of my childhood, and it will probably come back on the show at some point, and it is The Nightmare Before Christmas. Aw, yeah. Tim Burton, before he kind of overdid it and used... What's his name? Tim, uh, Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp has become irrelevant enough in my mind that I could not remember his name. Nightmare Before Christmas was such a huge part of my childhood. It was I, wonderful. I was always really into, you know, Halloween and, and scary <laughs> stuff. It's, you know, pretty much straight out of the womb. And Nightmare Before Christmas is pretty much my dream movie because it, it was... You know, scary stuff, but also a kid's movie, mm-hmm. and it was very mm-hmm. macabre and ghoulish, and the music by Danny Elfman was amazing. Oh, yeah. And I remember coming home from the theater, I was very young, and instantly picking up my magic markers and making a whole picture book. And then I and then I had to dictate to my dad what to write on each page oh, of this wow. book, because I could not write yet. I was illiterate at the time. <laughs> oh, that's so cute, though. Little illiterate, Sean. Yeah. Now, this, the film, I mean, Nightmare Before Christmas is just captivating. Like, I feel like it just gets into children's heads and sticks there because it's like this imagination land of all the different holidays and it's just absolutely insane. But and I it, loved it. Yeah. And again, super enduring. Mm-hmm. I mean, any, everyone has seen this film. I mean, even if your memory of it is your parents not allowing you to see it because people's <laughs> heads are getting cut off and comically. Aww. But it's a it's a wonderful, magical, horrific movie. And we close things out with the re-release of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Yeah, that was the only one that was kind of like not fitting in with the trend of the rest of the trailers, but... Think of that as a girl movie, do you? Uh, I don't know. The Seven Dwarves make it a, a, a boy and girl movie. But it, it was just kind of interesting because it was a re-release and it was just, uh, I don't know, the tone of it was definitely very different. Yeah, and when we say re-release, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves came out in theaters again, I guess around this time. like Oh, I forgot. You had mentioned that. Didn't yeah. you see it? Well, uh, yeah, I remember seeing it in theaters and being too young to understand that this is a movie from the 30s. That <laughs> I I really was was such a dummy that I, I, thought, I thought this is just the new Disney movie, Snow White. Wow, yeah. they did all that crazy antiquing yeah. to, to make it look really some, authentic. Some early examples of uh, Uncanny Valley with some of those really realistic, uh, lifelike characters. So there's been a lot of versions of Three Musketeers. I imagine a lot of our listeners out there have seen at least some version of this story. Most famously, you've got, I'd say, four or five versions of this story. Yeah. You've got... The 1948 George Sidney version that mm-hmm. had Lana Turner and Gene Kelly. I think Vincent oh, yeah. Price was the villain. Mm-hmm. In 73-74, you had the Three Musketeers and the Four Musketeers. Which I think those two were the most highly acclaimed ones, right? Roger Ebert. I think he said that he preferred that version when he was kind of complaining about this version not being necessary. Yeah, I mean, the 73 version seems to be the one that everyone champions. I myself haven't seen it, but it has Mm-mm. a crazy cast. I mean, that's sort of a theme with all these Three Musketeers movies is that they have just star-studded casts. The 73 yeah. version has Oliver Reed, Richard Chamberlain, Raquel Welch, Michael York, Christopher Lee, 
Charlton Heston, wow. like an insane cast. It's a fantastic cast. Uh, then after that, I would say this 93 version is also super popular. It did pretty well. We looked up its budget and how much they actually made. In 2001, we had The Musketeer, which was cashing uh. in on that Matrix craze because everyone <laughs> just wants to see a bullet time kung fu flipping musketeer. <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> that sounds really bad. Sounds and awful. we saw clips from the newest one, the uh, 2011 Paul W.S. Anderson, yeah, Three we Musketeers. Were, we were watching really bad YouTube uploads of it. Yeah, and it just looks really bad. It's just, you know, it's sort of going for like a steampunk over-the-top sort of vision of the novel. Really costumey. Everybody's kind of cartoonish. Even Christoph Waltz looks a little uh, you just don't take him seriously. Mads Mikkelsen is in there as as uh, Rochefort, which is usually Mads Mikkelsen being in something is enough for me to want to see it, but even that, I mean, it just looks like such a waste of him and everyone involved the with it. fighting choreography, you could tell they sped it up so it was like the Bourne movies or something, and then they added a ton of CGI. It was just weird for a, like, sort of historical-ish movie. Mia Jovovich is in there doing backflips and throwing CGI <laughs> bombs at people. It just, it seems to have even less to do with the story than this 93 version does. What makes this version special to you, Lindsay? It's the one I grew up with. Like, we watched my family's copy. We say it's my family's copy, but uh, actually this VHS tape was kept in my room. Because I considered it mine. <laughs> it was it was the one that I really loved. Like, I loved all that stuff. People riding horses, fighting with swords. You pointed out that it sort of got some similarities to Pirates of the Caribbean. Oh, yeah. Watch it, watching it again now, after having seen the pirate movies, it it's actually kind of feels like the pirates of my much younger childhood. It's definitely a precursor to that, I feel yeah. like, because they're not your average heroes. They're not your stand-up guys. They're kind of rough and rowdy guys. And uh, it sort of alternates from really dark and violent material to kind of lighter, mm -hmm. like, jokey sort of stuff. It's totally, it's very similar to the Pirates movies. There's discussion of wenching. Yeah, a lot of winches, <laughs> a lot of boozing, although in this it's mostly red wine and brandy. A lot of busty women. A lot of cleavage in this movie. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But um, let's talk about the star-studded cast of this movie. Oh yeah. One of the reasons I really loved this movie was because it had Chris O'Donnell, who I really loved as Robin. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, he's not playing Robin in this, although he kind of is. He plays young D'Artagnan, who, uh, just as in the Dumas story, has dreams of joining the Musketeers and mm -hmm. defending France and its young man-child king. D'Artagnan is essentially Robin. Like, he, he lost his dad. His dad was murdered. And then he wants to become a hero and save people, but he's really naive and obnoxious, and he ends up just pissing a lot of people off. I guess this is also <laughs> a precursor to Batman Forever in a weird way, because that was two years later. It was another movie. I love as a child. I bet that um, Chris O'Donnell would not have been uh, tapped to play Robin if not for his thrilling D'Artagnan. He proved himself here, for sure. But uh, D'Artagnan is not officially one of the Three Musketeers. The Three Musketeers, as in the book, are Athos, Porthos, and Aramis. Yes, and Athos is played by... Well, Athos is played by one of my favorites, kind of the Chris O'Donnell of my life, my dreamboat. Uh, 
one Mr. Kiefer Sutherland. And Athos is kind of the one you're not sure about. He's kind of the, uh, you know, he's kind of the one when everyone else is boozing it up and having a good time. He has a table by himself and he's just kind of quietly brooding, you know, drinking a lot, soaking his beard and brandy and and mumbling things to himself. I just do have to say all four of our main male characters have beautiful hair in this movie. Oh, yeah. The hair is impeccable. But let's keep talking about Keeper Sutherland. Yeah. He um <laughs> he gives a really understated performance mm-hmm. in this. And I think it really works. I'm not just saying that. I am a little bit biased. I love him and <laughs> I love I just celebrate the man's work. I love The Lost Boys. I love 24. I, I love everything that he's done. And I, I he's one of those actors where I would watch a film just because he was in it, which is a pretty short list. Like, I feel like that's only Kiefer Sutherland, John Cusack, and, like, a couple others that I could <laughs> say that. He's kind of the Leonardo of the group. He's kind yeah. of the leader. But uh, he's also kind of morally gray, and you get the sense that mm-hmm. he's got a dark past that you sort of learn about as things go on. Yeah, something that this definite kind of burden on his shoulders of something. Even though he's kind of understated and he he plays his brooding character, he still has fun in it. Like, there's definitely a lot of banter between all of the Musketeers and D'Artagnan that's a lot of fun to watch. Like you, it, like, you can kind of feel like, you know, these guys have a lot of camaraderie. They really get along and have each other's backs and want to get those wenches and kill those people. The, uh, the scene when they've hijacked the Cardinal's carriage and... Kiefer just, excuse me, Athos just tells D'Artagnan to take the reins while he swigs back red wine, and that's the memory that I'll carry of this film. So that's Athos, and we've got Porthos, played by Oliver Platt. Who really loved this role. Yeah, it's clear, it's clear that of all the actors, we were talking about how it sort of seems like no one really wanted to be there, except for maybe Tim Curry, who we're going to get to later, and Oliver Platt. Like, those are the two that yeah. really seem to relish their roles. We also decided this by based on YouTube videos of interviews. Yeah, it's. I mean, they did that thing where they did, like, the six months of fencing practice and training to sort of bond them together yeah. but which I guess does sort of come together yeah. but Oliver Platt is the one who really seems to be enjoying being there mm-hmm. and uh Porthos is kind of this loud mouth Porthos the pirate yeah he's traveled the world he has all kinds of random gadgets yeah he's kind of the Michelangelo of the crew <laughs> he's uh he's kind of a glutton he just loves booze and whores and and murder likes to tell lies about all the places that he's gone. He claims to have a sash from the Queen of America. He mentions that he got an axe from the Tsarist of Tokyo. All this is crazy outlandish just lies, basically. But he, he does have a weapon that is of South American origin. Yeah. I so mean, he's traveled. It's just he's definitely not met any Queen of America. He likes to stretch out his stories. Yeah. Um, next we have Aramis, kind of the ladies man of the group. Oh, yeah. And the godly man. The godly ladies man. God-fearing. Played by none other than Charlie <laughs> Sheen. 
Which, it's interesting, too, because Sheen requested this role. He was originally up for Porthos. And then proceeded to kind of just do nothing with it, in my opinion. Yeah. I think he's the weakest of the of the bunch. He played it a little flatly, but we also, in our thorough research, <laughs> where we pulled up IMDb's trivia page, we found out that he didn't attend the fencing practice that everybody else went to. I think he was kind of too busy with everything else in his career. He ditched fencing practice with all the other musketeers so he could shoot Hot Shots Part 2. So he kind of just shows up to set and says, Hey, I'm here. I'm Aramis. And everyone else has been bonded together and has learned how to fence. And, you know, honestly, I don't have anything against Charlie Sheen, personally. I, I could care less about his all his personal foibles and tabloid misadventures. But uh, And I love him in a lot of different things. But in this, I just found him to be very flat. And you don't really get a, a great feel of his character. But he almost gets there. That's the thing. Like, there are really fun things about his character. Like, our introduction to him is where he's seducing a man's wife using Bible study. Yeah, like, that's when his character really works for me. I feel like if they played up more of what a lechy yeah. is, then it might have worked more. But instead, he's just kind of sort of making him out to be sort of the godly one. But he's also kind mm-hmm. of like this this hopeless romantic. But he's also just kind of a lich. So Yeah, he kind of was a little bit mixed on who he was. It didn't seem like he had chosen one straight thing to do. But he still had some fun with it. I, you know, he had some funny lines. The, the main thing is you can tell he missed the fencing practice because there are a lot of fight scenes in this movie and we see one scene where he's really doing a sword fight very heavily choreographed yeah and then otherwise he's just shoving people <laughs> and then one last thing about charlie sheen's character aramis was that you know he is very godly and he studied under the he was a student of the cardinal And this kind of comes into play later in the movie. Speaking of the Cardinal... Our lead villain is played by none other than Tim Curry in a mustache-twirling big villain performance. Like, we're talking literal mustache-twirling. And, you know, we talked about this. um, Cardinal Richelieu was a real historical figure. And although he was the bad guy in the book and in most of the film versions I imagine he's really an over the top villain in this I mean he his plan is to disband the musketeers so he can assassinate the king mm-hmm. and rape the queen essentially essentially well <laughs> implied I mean Disney rape it seems like throughout the whole movie he's trying to seduce the queen but there's this underlying sort of I don't really care I want you to just have the I want you to want me but if you don't want me, it's still going to happen. Yeah, you know, it's interesting to see this kind of character in a Disney movie because he's one of those classic, like, hypocritical men of the cloth that are hiding behind God when, in fact, they're going around murdering people in their torture dungeons, grabbing women's boobs. I really think it's probably only okay to Disney because he's Catholic. Yeah. (laughs) And and a lot of Americans do not understand. Well, I shouldn't say this. Those papists. There are some Americans who do not understand that Catholics are Christian. Uh, This came up in a class when I was in high school. Classmates who did not know that Catholics were also Christians. I'm so happy that Tim Curry decided to play this so over the top and didn't go for something understated like some of our other actors, because this is the mode that I like to see Tim Curry in. I also love that repeatedly in interviews when he was asked about like how he 
got his inspiration for his character and how he went about being a villain. He was like, I started with the shoes. Yeah, he was. He said that in multiple interviews. Picked out some shoes and then the rest just came to me. And um, yeah, I mean, he's pretty much his evil character from Home Alone 2, except, uh, you know, in full Catholic regalia, holding pigeons. Uh, it's like Pigeons it's, that really want to escape. Yeah. That thing did not want to be held in his hands. Yeah, and he's, I mean, he's just wonderful in this, and it continues a long line of just great villainous actors in this role. Yeah. I mean, we had Vincent Price in the 40s. Charlton Heston played him in the 70s. Mm. And even today in the modern version, they brought in Christoph Waltz, who's oh, the yeah. go-to villain these days. So Tim Curry is an excellent addition to that canon yeah. of Cardinals. It's kind of funny because he strikes an interesting balance between being very villainous and being comedic, which seems kind of hard to pull off. But when he needs to be scary, he's scary. He farms out most of his scary sort of muscle work to his right-hand man, Rochefort. Yeah who's played here by Michael Wincott, who you is one of those faces that you probably recognize from other things. He's a really he's a really solid character actor. He's your standard, you know, in this he's your standard eye-patched goon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I guess she's kind of a villain, but we also have um Rebecca De Mornay as uh Lady De Winter. Oh yeah. She's sort of the spy that's working for the Cardinal. Mhm. Lady de Winter is essentially like one of the main female characters besides the queen, but she has probably the most lines of any woman. She has a kind of strong part in it. It kind of turns around. She brings one of the most heartbreaking scenes. Yeah, there's some real drama surrounding her character because of her relationship with Kiefer Sutherland, that they used to be married in a previous Mm -hmm, life, mm -hmm. and they kind of betrayed each other and went off on very different paths, resulting in, uh, well, spoiler here. I mean, we spoil all these movies, (laughs) but um, the first suicide in a Disney movie when Lady de Winter throws herself off the cliff in this movie. Into the rocks and ocean below. Which is surprising it took all the way to 1993 for Disney to portray suicide. I don't know, but I don't. It's it's kind of interesting to think about it because I mean, if you think about a lot of the Disney movies, like what were they producing? Mary Poppins, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, uh, a lot of animated movies where you're not really going to see suicide. It's a PG movie, but it's kind of adult in that it's got a lot of like sexual undertones, overtones, all overtones. It's got your violence. There's it's a very violent film. It's really violent early on in the film. Porthos, played by Oliver Platt. Oliver Platt jumps on a chandelier, not a chandelier, but some kind of like um, lighting apparatus. It's up basically in the a chandelier, like a wagon wheel chandelier. Yeah, jumps on it and has that falls with that on top of like ten men, crushing them to death. Porthos is a really bloodthirsty dude, considering he's the radical one. And then he just walks away. It's like it's almost like it was a cartoon death of a bunch of people. Like it's 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 very breezy. There's also Porthos's fight with the troll man in the oh, dungeon my God. where he throws him on spikes, which is bloody in and of itself. But then he activates this lever that pushes a whole nother wall of spikes through him. And this yeah. giant ogre man just starts spitting blood all over the place. And it's like, whoa, uh. Disney. Like, really? He's got blood flowing out of his mouth. Yeah. So... They don't pull any punches at the violence in this movie. But they even made that violent scene kind of humorous because the guy's like screaming in pain, startles 
Porthos, which makes him close the thing to get him extra spiked. Yeah, extra spikes. And then we just kind of have a lot of token female characters. I mean, yeah, very token. Gabrielle Anwar from uh, Burn Notice plays Queen Anne. Mm-hmm. She's uh, she's a sort of powerful character, like verbally, because she's resisting all of the cardinal's advances and pretty upfront with how she feels, which she, is kind yeah. of a strong thing to do. She has agency, and she's not being completely manipulated like yeah. her boy husband, the king. Oh, boy. But I don't know. You, you sort of get the sense that she's trying to protect her husband, yeah. um, but she's still being manipulated. And then Julie Delpy from the Before series plays mm-hmm. Constance, who's kind of a small role. Julie Delpy's character doesn't do a lot other than fall in love with D'Artagnan at first sight, who also mutually falls in love with her at first sight. Paul McGann from With Nail and I plays yeah. this complete fop who's uh <laughs> who's kind of a foil for d'artagnan and is chasing him around screaming d'artagnan and uh Which, you pointed this out i didn't really pick this up but there's a little bit of implied incestuousness in yeah his character paul mcgann's character is chasing around d'artagnan this entire movie because uh d'artagnan had given his sister a kiss goodbye and he's just so jealous about this you can't do this to my sister yeah, up until the very last scene of the movie, he's incensed about this and is yes. trying to kill D'Artagnan. And it's not like he's saying you have to marry her. It's just like, I have to avenge her honor. She also kind of helps save his life later. So that's that's something. Yeah, and she has this interesting talk with the queen when... <laughs> Where we learn, we learn what it feels like to fall in love. It means you need to loosen your corset. Moment of levity between two females while one is bathing and then... Julie Delpy leaves and the queen is accosted while naked by the lecherous cardinal. Cardinal Tim Curry. I'm just going to start calling him that because I don't want to keep saying Richelieu because I'm probably saying it wrong. Cardinal Tim Curry is such a creepy guy. He sneaks up behind women while they're in tubs and puts a robe on them and just starts twirling his mustache all over them. In every scene with a woman, he's staring at their boobs. Which was, one. A, which was a great character choice on Tim Curry's part. <laughs> with, literally, with one, he he goes to grope Madame de Winter. Uh, what's Rebecca de Mornay? Yeah. In in one scene with Rebecca de Mornay, he actually like reaches forward to grope her and only stops because she threatens him with a knife. He was gonna take a boob in each hand. Yeah. He that was, was his he's, plan. <laughs> he's taking a handful. I start with the shoes and then the boobs. <laughs> um, okay, so we've, we've whirled through this star-studded cast, this who's who. Um, what is this movie actually about? So essentially, this movie is all about a cardinal who is power-hungry and wants to assassinate the king so he can take over and get his wife. It's uh, 1625 in France, Mm -hmm. and the cardinal has more power than the king. Yes, because he's the head religious figure, essentially, you know, at least in that area. Yeah. We're narrowing the Pope. They didn't mention the Pope at all. Yeah, interesting choice by Disney to not mention the Pope. Sort of the, like, parallel storyline is D'Artagnan wanting to become a musketeer to kind of fulfill his dream of being a hero to fulfill his dream of being like his father avenging his father's death all that sort of stuff yeah sort of a robin like figure you could almost say uh yeah d'artagnan's even an inigo montoya sort of character from princess bride a lot of princess bride parallels like even in the way the action is shot yeah 
Um, which, speaking of which, Carrie Elwes was nearly cast. And yeah. even did an interview with Kiefer Sutherland for this film. Yeah, you know, it's so funny. It seems like there was just a casting musical chairs for this movie as to who is going to be Athos, who's going to be Porthos, who's going to be Aramis. If Carrie Elwes ended up turning this down to do Robin Hood Men in Tights, which came out the same year, that's totally okay. Yeah, that was probably a smart move for him. One, we talked about this before, one of the really refreshing things about this movie is how there is no CGI whatsoever. It is so refreshing to see that. I mean, it's a kid's period piece action movie with not a single digital effect. I mean, certainly not an obvious one. So you have just really exquisitely choreographed sword fights. Mm -hmm. You have barrels of gunpowder exploding for real. It's just so nice to see so much just practical effects and craftsmanship. Well, and also the the costuming itself was really straightforward and simple. It's not costumey. It just fits the period. I, I don't know if it's completely accurate, but it feels like they're not trying to go for anything big and crazy. I know yeah. that the newest version... The costumes were nuts. Just... There was lime green. The king was wearing lime green. Yeah, it just looked really bad. But there was a flying airship, Sean. <laughs> let's let's please never watch that version. <laughs> it was painful just watching short clips of it. Tim Curry's character, he's just such a villain. The first shot of the movie is we're in this over-the-top sort of, you called it like a cistern. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a dungeon, it's like a dungeon river, and he's Yeah, this just, cavernous he's, uh, waterway. Yeah, he's, the first shot of the movie is Tim Curry <laughs> sailing through the fog on a hellboat, and just draped in his blood-red robes, just... He's just such a a, a uh, scenery-chewing bad guy. Yeah. It's so wonderful. But it's fitting that it opens this way because it comes to the the final battle comes to a close in the same cistern. An interesting scene too, because his pupil Charlie Sheen, oh, yeah. after nearly being killed by the cardinal, comes back <laughs> Which to settle I, the score. I just realized Tim Curry totally pulled a Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones move by pulling his pistol on Charlie Sheen when Charlie Sheen was challenging him with a sword. Yeah, during the big climactic battle, um, Tim Curry just kind of shoots Charlie Sheen. Which, if he had only known, he could have probably taken him with a sword because Charlie Sheen didn't know how to use one. Because he didn't go to the damn fencing practice. But he can shove people really hard. Yeah. And shoot them. This is one of the other things about this movie because they're... I, I, I love it. There are really interesting things about it. But I do kind of wonder, like, they hired Charlie Sheen. They had gave him this really kind of interesting dynamic role. They also made sure to set up earlier on in the movie that Charlie Sheen was once a pupil, a, a student of the Cardinal. So there's, like, this tie there. And you think, man, the final battle is going to come down to these two facing off. And you see that. And then Charlie Sheen just gets shot in the chest. He's saved by God because the bullet <laughs> hits his cross. Which is actually a moment I really like. That I love that line. That, that could have gives. been really preachy, but instead, Charlie Sheen's line, and, and by the way, none of these guys are using English accents or French accents. They're no. just using their American accents. Charlie Sheen's line when he pulls out the cross and sees that the bullet has been deflected by it, he's just kind of like, huh, there is a god. <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's just kind of the perfect thing because he could have said something really preachy there, but yeah. it's just kind of like, 
oh, I was just doing this whole God thing to pick up chicks, but I guess it's a real thing. I like how, actually, backtracking off a little bit, but this whole final battle doesn't, it it follows the suicide kind of shortly after. So you have this seriousness, it's been set up, it's very dramatic. And so you're going to this final battle, and then when Charlie Sheen's gets shot, you think, this is for real, he is dead. But then he just gets up, and it's this comical line, it's like, yeah, let's go, guys. I mean, I wasn't... You were really upset. (laughs) I was upset when Charlie Sheen... So maybe maybe Charlie Sheen was pretty good in this role, because I was upset when he died, because I was thinking, get away, there's the three musketeers, he can't die, and I I couldn't remember that character getting shot in any version that I'd heard of. I really enjoyed... You you were so nervous, and you thought he was actually dead, and I was just sitting there knowing that he was going to get up later. You knew. <laughs> I always fall for that in movies. But anyway, so Charlie Sheen later gets up, he magically appears on the hellboat in the cistern at the end of there that the cardinal's on. He reveals himself. He's about to kill off the cardinal. And then he's interrupted by our wimpy king. The wimpy king kind of steals the kill there. He punches Cardinal Curry, killing him immediately. <laughs> we don't know if he's dead. He well, just falls into the water. We're assuming he's dead. I doubt he knows how to swim and he's wearing a lot of clothing. He's the cardinal. He has people to swim for him. Because <laughs> uh, I guess we assume that he was knocked out and then drowned. But for being such a villainous character, I mean, with Rochefort, you know, who killed D'Artagnan's father, yeah. we get this really great sword fight that Julie Delpy gives sort of an assist on. Also, the guy that was killed in the murder device, that horrible troll man. Yeah, troll man gets more of a death scene than Tim Curry does. With blood spurting out of his mouth. But then I'm kind of wondering, maybe Tim Curry, they gave him a lighter death because it just followed the blood spurting troll man scene? Or it could be they were they were betting on a sequel. Like, they were going to do a Four Musketeers like they did in 74. That's possible. This, I think, I mean, it's a very loose adaptation, but I think it covers the whole book from yeah. everything we could tell. It's a very loose adaptation, though, because in the other versions, the Cardinal isn't plotting to murder the king. He, yeah, does, that's he a... is power hungry. I do like that it's sort of gives a strong kind of drive to the story because it's it moves at such a breakneck pace we've got the cardinal scheming we kind of switch between scenes of the cardinal you know rubbing his hands together thinking up ways to kill the king on his birthday and all the horrible dirty things he wants to do the queen yeah just being a horny evil man and then Cutting to all this intrigue over this treaty that uh, is kind of the evidence that the Three Musketeers and D'Artagnan are tracking down Mm -hmm. to uh, prevent this killing from happening. So it's, I mean, it moves really fast. I mean, I guess it's a good complaint that I have is this that I sort of wanted more of these characters there like you said like there is an opportunity to do do more with charlie sheen's relationship with the cardinal instead of just kind of mentioned in dialogue that oh he studied under the cardinal it's a little weird that they set that up because i don't know you expect a bigger showdown than they had it ended up linking together but not in the way that you anticipate with them giving that kind of clue and early on You say you wanted more. I mean, what I loved was when they stole the Cardinal's wagon. This is like mid-movie. Oh, yeah. And they go through. That's my favorite action sequence. They take all the money. They redistribute the wealth to the poor. They are taking out, uh, like, bottles and bottles of booze. Uh, Kiefer Sutherland gives up the reins to D'Artagnan so that he can just start, like, going through the wine. I love it because Oliver Platt 
pops out and he's holding brandy and he's holding champagne, champagne and he's like a little bubbly kefir. He doesn't say kefir, he says Athos. <laughs> and Athos is like, we're in the middle of a chase. And Porthos says, you're right, the red. And just like little moments like that are a lot of fun. Yeah. The way he, they are in that scene, you can almost see a little bit of Jack Sparrow. Porthos is, is similar to Jack Sparrow, I would yeah. say. I think he's the closest. He is the most piratey with his bandana. Yeah, and all his crazy weaponry. His women. Reviews when this came out when this film came out were not kind. I think kind of unfairly. They just kind of their main complaint was why do we need another Three Musketeers movie? And I I think that's kind of a weak argument. There's always room for a new well, generation to take on a classic story. And they definitely rewrote it. I mean, they added in the I want to murder you angle for the king and the uh, cardinal and stuff like that. So they did kind of change it up. And But yeah. yeah, that was definitely the main complaint was kind of people were just like, this has been done before. Come on. I mean, I, I have a feeling it's not just us that this is probably a lot of people's preferred version of this story. It's hard for me to say preferred version because I have not seen any other versions, (laughs) but I'm pretty sure it's my preferred version because I didn't grow up with any of the other ones. Yeah, well, with Keeper Sutherland, it's automatically my favorite without seeing the others. (laughs) But another thing that critics complained about was this song, and they said (laughs) that like the movie, this song was just kind of a product that it was just yeah. put out there to be like an automatic chart topper and this song is all for love by the three musketeers of music <laughs> sting rod stewart and brian adams and this song gets first billing in the end credits meaning before the cast before the crew a single title appears that says all for love sung by brian adams rod stewart and sting before anything else that that's how important this song is and it's kind of your classic like early 90s crooner that kind of just sounds like nothing like it kind of yeah. sounds like he left the refrigerator open and also it's kind of noise <laughs> We ended up looking up the music video. The music video is really dull. It's just kind of like Rod Stewart, Sting, and Brian Adams hanging out in just the beginning. Just kind of hanging out. It's like, look, they're friends. And they and then they start singing. They and... laugh when Rod Stewart shows up like an hour late. And they're like, oh, you're an hour late, mate. And then they just start laughing about that. They start, they start kinda... talking about their old man hair. And... Yeah. Start comparing hair. They start tickling the keys on the piano. And they kind of... They take their damn sweet time lulling you into it. And there's not even any footage from the movie in the music video. No, there isn't. So this is your tape. You're you're revisiting it for the first time in ages. Since elementary school. Since elementary school. Do you buy it? Do you rent it? Do you tape over it? Lindsay, the people want to know. I'm going to say buy it for me. Maybe other people rent it, but for me it's a buy it because I just still love it. It's still, it's just like, it's always going to have that soft spot in my heart. And it's a fun movie. Like, it's not perfect. It's, it's, it could be improved, but it's really very fun and it's very much its own thing. Like, they have kind of dorky joke setups and stuff, but it makes it a little bit more charming. Yeah, this is a strong rent it for me. I really enjoyed this. Um, but I don't really have a strong connection to the source material in any way. I mean, I didn't really grow up with these characters. I don't really have a lot of, you know, other versions to compare it to. So, yeah, I'm going to say that I really enjoyed it. It was just so refreshing to see this swashbuckling action movie with a, a really charismatic cast. 
led by the dapper Kiefer Sutherland. <laughs> and just, uh, you know, it's just so refreshing to see it without CGI, without... It's simple and down home. So rent the movie and buy the single, All for Love. Don't buy it. It's not good. <laughs> we'll have to put that music video on the site. Well, Sean, what are we watching next time? Well, week after next, we're dipping back into my VHS collection, and I'm taking kind of a page from your book. I'm going to pick one of my childhood favorites. It's not just a movie I'm curious about revisiting. It's a movie that I know I loved. It's a movie that I know I'm still going to love. It is... The Kevin Bacon classic, Tremors. I'm so excited for this. I also loved Tremors as a child. If you have not seen Tremors, I strongly suggest you watch it before our next episode because it's a great monster movie and just a whole lot of fun. It is loads of fun. It's really funny, too, without being... Yeah, I'd call it sort of a a sci-fi action comedy. Like, it's not exactly a horror movie. I'd like to thank Will Price, as always, for use of Mandatory Groove, our groovy theme song. You can listen to more of Will's music at soundcloud.com slash gargantulon. And for more of our episodes, you can check out iTunes. Just look us up under Tapeheads Podcast. You can also look up tapeheadspodcast.com to see our website where we post blog posts. Each time we upload an episode, there are also trailers to the movies we're talking about, and sometimes we find some fun little clips to post to. Yeah, there's a lot of fun stuff on the Tapehead site. I try and route people there whenever possible, but uh, yeah, you can also check us out on SoundCloud and iTunes and all that other good stuff. And if you like this podcast, you can help support us by giving us a rating on iTunes or writing a review. So that's it for Tapeheads. I've been Sean. And I've been Lindsay. Until next time. 